The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from 1 Peter 1, 3-12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to Christ. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, Happy Easter to you. And I just want to let you know that that we considered uh, putting the words that Peter uses in his his text that was just read, born again, uh, in the title of the sermon, but we figured that if we did that, we would get no visitors. Uh, on Easter because people would say, oh, that's one of those churches, those born-again, saved types. And uh, Catherine Whitehorn is a British journalist uh, who wrote, why do born-again people make you wish that they had never been born the first time? Then Herb Cain, who's a columnist from San Francisco, says, the trouble with born-again Christians is that they're in even bigger pain the second time around. It's as if born-again Christianity is a brand or variety of Christianity. You have Catholic Christianity, you have uh, Presbyterian Christianity, Baptist, Church of Christ, Pentecostal, and then bringing up the rear, born-again Christianity. There's a caricature of those who identify themselves as born-again Christians, holier-than-thou, anti-intellectual, not really into science, socially awkward, head in the sand, watch 
weird movies, and so on. But in the Bible, every Christian is a born-again Christian. In fact, Jesus said to a very accomplished man, an elite named Nicodemus, that if you want to see the kingdom of God, if you want to understand how the universe really works, you must be born again. You can read the whole episode there in the third chapter of John's gospel. And in our text this morning, written by one of the, uh, the premier followers of Jesus Christ, the Apostle Peter, he says, God has called us to be born again to a living hope. And so, the picture here, though, of the born-again Christian, which is really every true follower of Jesus, is a picture of somebody who is resilient, joyful, generous, loving, insightful, humble, and hopeful. It's a picture of those who are winning. And I don't mean winners as in superior. That's, that's the furthest thing from the truth. But what the born-again experience gives you, Peter says, is the ability to understand that you are winning even when it seems like you're losing. And one of the things that Peter does in this masterful text about Easter and resurrection is that he tackles three problems that the human race, in spite of all of our genius and technology and science and, 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 and advance and brilliance and so on, has not been able to solve. And those three problems are the problem of sin, the problem of suffering, and the problem of death. And so, I'd like to walk us through each of those for a few moments. First, the problem of sin. So, there are three times in the passage where, where Peter uses the word salvation in reference to those who've been born again to this living hope that he writes about, the, the verse 5, verse 9, verse 10. And the question is, salvation from what? What are we being saved from? And the answer to that is chiefly not we're being saved from all the problems out there. The answer is we're being saved from ourselves. We're being saved from all the problems that are in here that we can't figure out a way to get rid of. See, in the Bible and human experience, and you don't have to be a religious person to understand this and to, to feel it viscerally in the depths of who you are, the Bible but also experience, philosophy, teach us that something is deeply wrong with us, and we're not able to fix it. So, there's this scene in Macbeth where Lady Macbeth is sleepwalking. And in her dream, she's dealing with or trying to deal with this spot of blood that's on her hand, and she just keeps saying, out, out, out. And, and no matter how loud, loudly she shouts, no matter how much she tries to sort of, you know, brush it away, that spot will not go away, and the spot represents the guilt that she is carrying with her. And in a lot of ways, Lady Macbeth is a picture of the human race. We were created pure and clean, just like this glass of water. God made us to be that way. But then something came into the picture called sin, and, 
we may regard it as a little thing, just like a virus is a little thing. But if the virus penetrates the organism, it, 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 it colors and corrupts and sickens every part of that organism in the same way that maybe a little drop of water or a little drop of dye will do the same. It makes its way into every molecule. You know, Billy Graham gave this TED Talk that um, one, of, one of our friends in, in the church sent to me a couple weeks ago. It was his talk, it was about 20-ish years ago, it was about technology, and on the one hand, he's, he's talking about how amazing technology is. It's a, enabled us to put somebody on the moon. It's, it's enabled us to uh, plunge the depths of the sea. We can observe things three miles now below sea level. We can explore the galaxies billions of miles and light years away with telescopes and satellites and, and other technologies. And yet, Billy Graham went on to say, yet there is still something deeply wrong with us, and it's, it's the problem of sin. We haven't been able to get rid of it any more than Lady Macbeth was able to get rid of the spot on her hand and on her soul. You know, he says that we're able to probe the secrets of the universe, but we, we can't get rid of our sin. He goes on and says there are wars in every generation, there are revolutions in every part of the world. We can't get along even with our own families. We have self-destructive habits, racism, injustice, violence, fraud, deceit. Even the most sophisticated intellects, he goes on to say, have no answers for the question, how do we fix man? There is no fix. You know, the British philosopher and atheist who was also a secular humanist and one of the more optimistic people in the world about um, human potential, Bertrand Russell said this, it is in our hearts that the evil lies, and it is from our hearts that evil must be plucked out. Then Albert Einstein said something similar. He said, it is easier to denature plutonium than it is to denature the evil spirit of man. The problem of sin, you don't have to be religious to understand that this is a problem that we haven't been able to fix. I mean, let's just talk about New Year's resolutions. How many of us have kept them? I am three pounds heavier now than I was on January 1. (laughs) But then there's the problem of suffering. You know, whereas sin is the problem that's inside of us, suffering is the problem that, 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 that happens to us from forces outside of us oftentimes. Uh, interestingly, the, the introduction in my Bible to First Peter, this isn't part of the Bible, but it's, it's just a sort of three-paragraph introduction of the letter in my Bible. It says this about the audience. He says, Peter's readers, those who are reading this letter, those to whom it is written, are confused and discouraged. And he gets that information, the the commentator does, from verses like this one, like verse 6, where Peter says, you all are grieved by various trials. Now, the you in Peter's intended audience included every kind of person. It included rich people, poor people, healthy people, sick people, young people, 
elderly people, strong people, people living with weakness, PhDs, those with special needs, married people, single people, movers and shakers, people who are just making it by. It included all those people, just like this room. It includes all those kinds of people. And yet he writes, as if suffering is a universal problem that every person experiences in every situation. You know, this is the greatest thing, I think, or one of the greatest things about the Bible, is it's so fiercely honest, and it is so wonderfully validating of that sense that we all have that things are wrong, that things aren't working, that they're not humming along, that we're not killing it, that we're not crushing it, that there really are no optimistic hashtags that could describe our lives and our experiences, at least not for long. The Bible validates that feeling. The Psalms, which are, are given to us as the prayer book of God, are filled with hope and optimism and joy, just like this text. They're also filled with lament and sorrow and tears and protest about the way things are. You know, Jesus is standing at the tomb at the graveside of one of his friends who has died, and it says that he weeps. This is God weeping. It says that he gets angry at death, and then and then later on, he's, he's anticipating his death on the cross. He's preparing his heart for it in prayer. And it says that as he prays in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, his soul is overwhelmed with sorrow, even to the point of death. And then on the cross, he, he says, I'm thirsty. They give him vinegar. I've, I've been in pastoral ministry for 22 years. My friend Kevin Twitt, who will be preaching next week, uh, graduated uh, with me from seminary some 22 years ago, and um, I've come across all kinds of suffering, all kinds, in my own life, in my own household, and then in the ministry as I've walked alongside people whose lives have been um, wrecked by things like infidelity estrangement, addiction, anxiety, depression, poverty, disease, unemployment, death. I mean, you, you, could, you could add to the list countless things. But I've also been in community with all kinds of people who, from the appearance of things, are living the dream and who are crushing it. Because I have gotten to live in two it cities. Before we came to Nashville, we lived in New York City, and in New York City, I was pastor to several Wall Street billionaires, to film actors, to fashion models, to professional athletes, to talk show hosts, to stage performers and doctors, and A-listers, and then we came to Nashville, and it's just been a continuation in many ways of the same. Some of the most talented, accomplished people that we've ever met in our lives, we've been in community with. And whether you're in the, the category of the sufferers or whether you're in the category of those who are crushing it, you're in the category of the sufferers. I have never met a person without problems. Never. I've never met a person who did not have things that they were afraid of, things that they regretted, things that they were sad about, things that were making them hurt. I've never met that person if you are a human, Peter says, to all kinds of people, 
with all kinds of life experiences, if you are a human, you are by nature grieved by many trials. The suffering is real. You know, Thoreau got it right in Walden. He said the mass of men, in other words, everyone, the mass of men lead quiet lives of desperation. And as a, as a child of the Generation X generation, you got to get an REM quote in there. In the prime of their careers, they sang from stages to adoring crowds, everybody hurts. This is the problem of sin and suffering, and then there's the problem of death. Our community here at Christ Prez has been going through the book of Ecclesiastes, which is uh, a, a, a philosophical, a very philosophical book in the Bible, and it deals with all kinds of human problems and concerns and experiences with things like sin and suffering and also death. And um, I'll let you in on a little secret. It may be disappointing with you, but it wasn't the birds who came up with the phrase, to everything there's a season. <laughs> turn, turn, turn. Ecclesiastes is the source of these words. There is a time for everything, including a time to be born and a time to die. Mortality rate has always been one person for every one person, and we have not been able to fix that. We have not been able to even come close. Some of us are in this room even today with death on our minds, but we've been able to avoid it most of our lives, a lot of us, the thought of death. You know, in first century Palestine, which was the, the community that Peter was a part of, the uh, life expectancy was 35 years old, and the infant mortality rates were really high. Mothers regularly died giving birth to children, and so on. And so, death was always on their minds. It was never out of mind, out of sight for them. But for us, currently, our life expectancy, our average life expectancy in our culture, in our part of the world, is 79 years. And so, for a good long while, we, we can avoid the subject, we can push it down, we can cover it over with distractions and phone apps and Netflix binges and social media gluttony. We can cover over it, the, the reality of death for, for a little while, but eventually there's going to be a wake-up call. And like I said, there are many people in this room right now where death is your prevailing thought because there was a diagnosis that happened, or, or you're aging and you're feeling it, or somebody close to you has died. Just this past week, I got my latest wake-up call in the mail. Good news, Mr. Sauls, you're eligible now for an AARP card. <laughs> I turned 50 this Saturday. <laughs> that means the law of averages says I've got 29 years to go. I've got a daughter who's 20. Seems like she was just born last week. The other thing that the AARP promises is that if I sign up for a card, I get a free sporty tote. <laughs> I do not want a free sporty tote. What I want is to live forever, and what I want is to be remembered always. 
You know, Leoy Tolstoy, so relatable, he wrote in his confession, is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? One can only truly live while intoxicated with life as soon as one is sober or awakened to the reality of death that's coming for all of us. Once we are sober to that reality, it is impossible not to see that it's all a mere fraud and a stupid fraud. Who knows who George Solti is? Raise your hand. I don't see a single hand in here. There might be one or two. George Solti won more Grammys than anybody in the history of music. Thirty-one. Who knows who John Tyler is? Nobody. Tenth president of the United States. <laughs> who knows who Sojourner Truth is? Okay, a few hands. Good. The justice impulse is moving its way through the Christ Press community, and I love that. I love that. that. That's a deep priority to our hearts. She was an African-American, an abolitionist, and a champion for women's equality. Who knows who Scott Sauls is? About 20% of you, it looks like. That's me. Fast forward from now 100 years. Let's say that question is asked from every pulpit in the world on Easter Sunday. I can pretty much guarantee you not a single hand will go up all over the world. Even the smallest child here, the clock's ticking. It's already ticking. Because there's a time to be born and there's a time to die. Grim Reaper comes for all of us. No amount of technology, no skill set that enables us to put a person on the moon or to be able to talk in real time, in FaceTime, to somebody on the other side of the world. No amount of technological genius and skill and human ingenuity and scientific prowess can fix death. And so, here we go. The answer to it all, the gospel. This is what distinguishes Christianity from every religion and every philosophy that's ever been. The gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the message of Christianity, is not and never has intended to be good advice. It's good news. That's what it is. Right here, verse 12, these are things that have been announced to, to, you, announced to you. They're not things that you achieve. They're not things that you work yourself up to. They are things that have happened to you and been announced to you from before the time you even existed, and they will endure when it seems that you no longer exist. I'll clarify that word seems in a moment, but here's what's been announced. Christ has died. That's the Good Friday message. There was an exchange that took place when Jesus voluntarily submitted to the will of His Father and, 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 and went to the cross and died there because God so loved us and because God so loved the world and because God so cherished the notion of the salvation of tainted 
stained souls. And what happened on the cross is an exchange happened where we get, those who trust in Him, we get Jesus' reputation and record, and then Jesus gets all the blame for ours. We get the credit for everything that He's done, He gets the blame for everything that we've done, and that's the cross. All of your failures and sins, past, present, future, forgiven. You are a clean glass of water. Lady Macbeth's spot of guilt and shame, it's gone. It doesn't exist. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be whiter than snow through Christ. This word hope that Peter plays with, it's, 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 it's typically a future word, but here it's, it's actually meant to be experienced in the present. That's why he calls it a living hope. In other words, you're able to start experiencing that clean pronouncement and verdict that's made over you because of Jesus Christ. So, I, I write a blog. It's cathartic to me. I, I just like to put words out. It, it, it helps me process things. And this past week, I released or re-released a, a blog, and the title of that blog post is, Last Year, Self-Loathing Ruined My Easter, and I'm sort of glad that it did. Uh, and if you were here last year, you, you might remember there was a little bit of self-disclosure uh, between me and several thousand of my closest friends, because just a couple of days prior, God created this occasion for me to see in, no, in, in, in unmistakable terms how deep and, and, and pervasive the stain on my soul still is. And my wife, Patty, was privy to that, and, and so we, we had dinner together, and I just looked at her across the table, and I said, look, can you be honest with me? You're the one who loves me the most. You're the one who knows me the best. Am I a fraud? Do I have any business getting up there on Easter Sunday talking as if I know what I'm talking about? And, you know, God, in, 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 that was like last year's AARP experience. It seems like God just wants to mess with me maybe every Easter, and maybe it's because He wants me to walk up here not with a swag but with a limp. You see, because pastors, we, we, we tend to feel a little bit of swag on Easter, right? But the true test of vitality and health and, 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 and vibrancy in a church isn't what happens on Easter Sunday. It's what happens in the dead of July. And so maybe this is God's reminder to me again. You need to walk up there, son, with a limp. Because it is only my servants who limp, who can do any good. For the people who are all out there grieving over many trials. So my wife responds to me and says, Do you think, Scott, it might be time for you to start believing what you preach? That Christ has died? You know, you tell us, Scott, that Abraham was a bad husband, Jacob was a liar, Rahab was a prostitute, Jeremiah was depressed, David committed adultery and murder, Martha was a miserable perfectionist, Peter was a bull in a china shop, Mary Magdalene had demons, and God shook the earth and blew a hole in the gates of hell with each and every one of them. Ask yourself, Scott, do, do you want a big Scott or a big God to be presented to the people who dare to come listen to you? What is this living hope? The living hope is this. You damaged, guess what? You're not done. Damaged, 
does not mean done. It actually might be the beginning of your effectiveness. It might be, actually be the, the beginning of your real life recognizing that, yeah, you're pretty jacked up. But Jesus is bigger than that. Christ has died. He's also risen. That's the Easter message. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, he talks about in verse 3. In other words, this is the representation, this man coming up in time, space, history from the grave, you guys, represents the death of death, not just for him, but for everyone who's connected to him through faith. When a Christian body is buried, it's not being disposed of. It's being planted like a seed that just like Jesus Christ will spring up incorruptible on the day of His return. It's been promised to us, and the assurance of that future event is what's already happened in the past. And there are wonderful long-term benefits to this. Peter writes of it, there is a waiting for you an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you for that day when your living soul that will never cease to live, even when it's absent from your body for a time, after that soul is united with your perfected body that will be like the risen body of Christ, saved to sin and saved to suffer and saved to die no more. That's what he means by an inheritance. And that, Peter argues, should govern our present mood. We should always feel, to the degree that we believe this stuff, like we're winning even when we're losing. Some of the most joyful, poised, at rest, sleeping deeply at night, optimistic people that I've ever known are people from this church who are right in the middle of dying. You can't manufacture that through technology. That's what you call a living hope that has come to you through an announcement of something that has been done outside of you but for you so that the life of God can then flow through you. In this, Peter says, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you are grieved by various trials. For a little while, sin, suffering, death, they're all going to be not only eliminated, but reversed. I love how C.S. Lewis writes it, that, that heaven, once we're there, it will work backwards and turn even agony into glory, like waking from a nightmare. You, you, you appreciate even more everything and everyone that you, you thought you'd lost in your nightmare when it's restored to you, as you wake up to reality, to the reality that you're living in. And so, if Tolstoy were with us now, Tolstoy would eventually make his peace with God. Tolstoy would eventually put his hope in the fact that Christ has died, Christ has risen. If Tolstoy were with us now, I suspect he would say that everybody, please listen to me. It turns out these things, sin, suffering, and death, 
that I once bemoaned, sin, suffering, and death, these are actually the true stupid fraud. These are actually the temporary things. These are actually the things that, that though human beings can't fix, God has fixed it all. And Christ will come again to inaugurate that new future. The best days always ahead of us, never behind us. Can you imagine? Can you believe it? What I'd like to do is close in prayer. This actually hit my inbox this morning. Uh, it's a prayer that, that, uh, that uh, my friend Scotty Smith, who's a, another pastor in Nashville, wrote as a reflection on this very passage that we're reading. And I thought it was so masterful that I would just close my sermon with this prayer. So, will you pray with me? Risen and reigning Lord Jesus, this morning we join the Apostle Peter's exuberant declaration of living hope and great joy. For you have risen from the dead. Hallelujah. Your resurrection isn't just a game changer. It's an everything changer. Because of your resurrection, we are no longer afraid to die, for you have conquered death. And we are not afraid to live, for we've been raised to eternal life in you, with you, and for you. We are not hapless vagabonds making our way on earth. We are heaven-destined children of Abba Father. We are no longer enslaved to our sins and our guilt. We are robed in your righteousness and citizens of heaven. Because you were raised, we are less to be pitied than anybody and more to be grateful than everybody. Lord Jesus, you are the first fruits and fulfillment of every promise God has made. The new creation world of redemption and restoration has now broken into history and one day will come in fullness. Everything sad will come untrue and all things broken will be made new. Hope defines our future, not hype. Truth, not myth. Peace, not chaos. Joy, not spin. Beauty, not brokenness. Now risen, you reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. All evil dominions and malevolent powers have been defeated and will be fully eradicated. The day of no more death and dying, cancer and crisis, war and worry, meanness and illness is coming. That day cannot arrive too soon, but arrive it most definitely will. Oh, the wonder, the marvel, and the gratitude that fills our hearts today, Jesus. We are forgiven, beloved, and yours in light of your compelling love and measureless grace, free us for spending the rest of our days living and loving to your glory. So very amen, we pray, Lord Jesus, in your triumphant and graceful name. Amen.